Well, good morning, friends. And if you have ever wondered what happens if you push all the buttons on the light board at the same time, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Hey, can we give a big hand to our tech team? Because we've got some stuff this morning. And um, they are uh, fearless and faithful friends that are uh, working out some gremlins in our system right now, so thanks to them. Uh, welcome to worship. My name is Tracy Bianchi. I serve as a member of our preaching team here, and I am thrilled to land the plane this morning on what is now the fourth installment in a series that we have called Seasons of the Soul, a conversation about the cycle of relationships and how we work through some of the sticky and tender places in our lives. We've talked about seasons of release that feel like autumn to us, where we, like leaves that fall to the ground, let go of people or of hopes and dreams and desires that we may have carried in our lives. We talked about winter seasons of realization, where buried deep in our dysfunction and despair, we catch the glimpse of a seed, perhaps, that's frozen in the soil, a moment where we come to the realization that we have to do life differently. We've discussed seasons of the spring, of that repair when we begin to make efforts to change the trajectory of things. And today, we get to talk on this January morning about what we call the summertime, perhaps, of the soul. And these are not one-time cycles that we go through just once in our life, but we know the churn of relationships and connections just keeps going and going. And so wherever you find yourself this morning, we hope that you will find more than anything the love of God in that story. And our conversation has come to us by way of the prodigal son, a story that some of you might know, a parable that um, we find in the Gospel of Luke. And it's the story, very quickly, for those of you who might not have been here, it's the story of a younger brother who says to his father, basically the equivalent of, I wish you were dead, what I would like from you is the inheritance that I would receive upon your death. I would like it right now. And at this time in history, it's a massive dishonor of his father, a slap in the face of the family. The father, for reasons we're not sure about, obliges, gives the son his inheritance, and the son goes off and squanders it. He's lost in all manner of vices and addictions and prostitution, and he runs out of money and reaches a point in the story where he is laying next to a pig pen at a farmer's, and far, at a farmer's land, and he realizes the pigs are eating better than he is, and it comes to realize in him that he needs to go home. And so he does, he heads home. And uh, Dan Meyer left us last week with this homecoming, where the father is going about his business, and he looks up on the horizon, as he probably did so many other times, only this time he sees the silhouette of his boy coming back home. And the father sets aside all dignity, all decorum, all manner of protocol, and lifts up the hems of his robe and just starts racing out to meet this child that he loves. In verse 15, 20, but while he was still a long way off, scripture says, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, 
I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. In verse 22, we start our passage for today. So the father says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Any among us who have ever lived in a family, any of you who have had this experience where a loved one vanishes, knows the deep longing that must have plagued this family after the younger son left. If you have ever watched someone leave or vanish like this in the jaws of addiction or anger or sheer determination to make a reckless choice, you would know then the deep anxiety and the shame and the fear this family experienced. The questions that they must have wondered about daily. Where will he end up? Is he even alive? And neighbors or gossipy onlookers who think to themselves, well, I don't know how parenting worked in that house where their kid went off and made that poor choice. Certainly we wouldn't allow that to happen. We wouldn't have given our child the inheritance like that. What gutter is he lying in? Who are his people? Are they helping him or hurting him? And maybe they ask, why were we not enough for him? Why did he have to leave in the first place? We weren't able to do for him what he needed? And of course, will he ever come home? It is a dangerous business to hope for the return. It puts you in a vulnerable place because you have no control over this return. So does the father dare even hope? You can imagine the magnitude then of this reunion and why all pretense was dropped and the father couldn't even wait for the boy to make it to the front door. He just took off running after this child. And the child says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I have done such egregious crimes. I, I am no longer worthy and the father instantly seeks to remind this child of his belovedness. He bejewels him with symbols of dignity. Put the best robe on this kid. Surely he stank. He came wandering up from the pig pens of his life and he's immediately clothed in the family's finery. Put a ring on his finger, a symbol of our family and of honor and dignity. And take those bare, tattered, dirty feet and let's put some sandals on this boy. Instantly, the father restores him to his rightful place in their family. Meanwhile, there's another brother in this story. And in verse 25, we read that meanwhile, the older son is in the field. And when he came near the house, he hears music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and said, what's going on? And the servant with enthusiasm says, well, your brother has come. 
And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother certainly is wondering, nobody even bothered to tell me he's back? I mean, I hear music, I don't even know what's going on. I thought it was Tuesday, but apparently it's a Saturday night. There's a party. The fattened calf is just a custom at this time in history. A family would set aside certain livestock that would be fed this robust diet so that when these rare times in the year came where there was a festival or a feast, the fattened calf would be killed and used to feed the family for this particular celebration. And the father throws all of those planning and all that planning and all those ideas aside and kills the fattened calf right there and throws a party for this older son or younger son. And the older son is like, what? I've been here this whole time. My dad has a 1927 Ford Model T hot rod in his garage. It's been this love of his. You know the kind of car with the giant big tires in the back and the little ones in the front and the exposed engine. And if my dad was here right now, he would be grinning that I'm talking about his car and he would be wincing because I'm not doing it justice. But it's cool. And it's his baby and he takes it to car shows and he loves to yuck it up with all the other car show guys and they all talk about this car. And it does not come out of the driveway. It does not come out of the garage if it's going to rain. Even if my dad probably were to come outside and see the faintest trace of clouds on the horizon, he would not take this car for a ride. And it would either be too cloudy or perhaps my kids were too sticky or whatever it was, but my dad had the car for a little while and I had not yet been for a ride in, in his car. And my sister, who lives out in Bend, Oregon, came home for a visit once, shortly after he got the car. And she does not come in often, as you can imagine. Oregon is not exactly close to Chicago, and she has to take a few planes. It takes her almost a day of travel to get here. She's busy, she's got a job, so she doesn't often come. And we have a great relationship, and she came to visit. And so everyone's excited because my sister's here. So I'm on the phone with my mom asking what the plans are of the day, and she says to me, well, honey, I'm not quite sure. You see, your father is out right now giving your sister a ride in the Model T. <laughs> And I look out the window, and it is cloudy outside. <laughs> and I remember having this moment, I was like, you're kidding me. I live here. I'm the daughter that stayed behind and had the grandkids, and here we are, and I didn't get to ride in the car? How many of you ever have had that sort of feeling turn up in you? So, Scripture says in verse 18, the older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered to his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders, and you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends, but this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, and you kill the fattened calf for him? I mean, he's thinking to himself, I've been here the whole time. I've done everything you've asked. I set aside my own adventures to do right by you. I got married and I settled down. I'm working your fields. 
I'm here to care for you as you age, and I have done what you've asked and will continue to do what you ask, and never once did you kill a fattened calf for me. I mean, you never even gave me a little bit of fun with my friends. Have I not earned at least that much? This is unbelievable. My selfish, idiot brother disgraces the whole family and walks back in the door with nothing, and you act like he's the most important person in the world? Frederick Beekner writes, the fatted calf, the best scotch, the hoedown could all have been this older brother's too. At any time, he asked for them, except that he never thought to ask for them because he was too busy trying cheerlessly and religiously to earn them. The older brother has some issues too. But let's be honest, can you blame him? I mean, anger and self-righteous indignation, they can take over any of us in a moment's notice. And I understand this emotion not because I'm the older sister and my little sister got a ride in the Model T, but because we carry this sort of emotion with us all the time. It fires up almost every day for some of us. And it gets in the way of the restoration that God wants us to have with one another. I remember driving up 294 a few years ago. I can't remember what the occasion was, but I remember that there was not a ton of traffic on the road heading up to Wisconsin. And in the rearview mirror, as all of us are driving along, I notice a little red sports car just swerving back and forth in traffic, cutting the lanes, driving fast and reckless. And now most of us, let's be honest, if we're heading up 294 and there's no traffic, we're not exactly going the speed limit either. At least I'm not always. And this, this guy was hauling, he was moving. And I remember there was a car in the center lane and I was in the left lane trying to pass that car and this little sports car came right up behind me. And I would be lying to you if I didn't slow down just a little bit to match the pace. <laughs> I was like, I'll show you, buddy. Uh, and he started honking and gesturing in his window, and I thought, this is, this, why am I doing this? So I slowed down, let him pass, and I mean, he just all the way. Brake lights for all the cars, people swerving. I mean, you've seen these folks on the road. And he was speeding and cutting everybody off in traffic. And he disappears, and about 10 minutes later, come kind of around a turn, and I see uh, police lights on the side of the road. Busted! And he got pulled over. And I'm sure almost everybody who had been cut off by him drove past and were like, ha ha, right? You know this feeling. The older brother certainly felt this way. And he probably had good reason. I mean, let's be honest, when we feel this way, we don't just make it up. We don't just wake up one morning and say we're gonna feel self-righteous and angry. Something has triggered us, and often our anger makes sense. Imagine what the older brother experienced in the wake of his younger brother's departure. He had to watch his father slump his shoulders and hang his head down and wonder and wait for his boy to come home. And that affected the older brother. Because at the dinner table was a visible reminder 
of his brother's departure. There was an empty chair. And I'm sure many times the banter of the day and the storytelling of the day turned to the ache and the wonder if his brother would ever return. And it changed the fabric, it changed the emotional ten tenor of that family. And that older brother, he was angry. And he resented his departure and then of course resented the father's celebration at this returning. And so at some extent we can understand while the music was thumping and everybody was hooping and hollering, and his younger brother was probably holding court and telling tales of some of his adventure. And the entire household, which at this time in history was more than just the nuclear families that most of us live with or the roommates that we have, this is extended family and relatives and servants and employees. This is dozens and dozens of people. And the entire household is thrilled because they can see the burden of the father lift at his return. And so he steps outside. He won't even go in to the party. And so the father steps outside because the older son matters too. Because the older son is also beloved by the father. And the father sees his distress and is able to leave the celebration and he goes outside and he focuses on his older boy. And I'm sure at some level he sat down and said, kiddo, <laughs> what are we doing here? Because the son had given him his rant and the son had uncorked the anger and had gone off about how he never got his celebration and how could you do this and this is a disgrace and on and on and maybe he had never even given words to his wound before, but it came out. And the father waits until he's ready to, to, to listen and he says this, he says, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Always has been. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. My son, I have always loved you. Set aside your pride for one moment and take note. Do you understand the magnitude of what has just happened? Your brother, your impulsive, selfish, reckless, we never knew if we would ever see him again, brother. Your brother who we thought was dead, whom we feared the worst, the worst did not happen. How can we not celebrate this? Now notice what the father does not say. He does not say, it's okay that this happened. He does not excuse the behavior, but he does point out that this lost son has come back. And regardless of the behavior, that son made a decision to return to the fold of the family. And there is no way we are not celebrating that. And the comfort of this father is also an attempt, just like what happened with the younger son, a reminder of who he is. He reminds him, says you, Everything I have is yours. It, it always has been. All you had to do was ask. So what keeps the older son from restoration? When we 
find ourselves the older child in this narrative, which doesn't matter what our birth order is, we have all been or are the older child on occasion, or some of us all the time. And maybe it was a scarcity mindset. Maybe the older brother feared that if the father reopened his heart to the youngest brother, that some of the love and the affection and the attention that he was receiving from his dad would now go the way of his son, the other son. As if the father's love was limited, as if, as if there were only so many pieces of the emotional pie you know, we worry this sometimes. Culturally, we live in a commodified world. We breathe the air of the marketplace all day long. Everything is some sort of transaction in our world. So this trickles over into our relationships and we begin wondering, well, if you give him or her that, will there be enough love left over for me? The answer is yes, there is. The expansion of the human heart is infinite when it finds itself in God. And yet, perhaps the brother lived with this scarcity mindset, or perhaps the older brother was afraid. And again, who can blame him at some level? I mean, while the father's out throwing his arms around his son, my guess is the older brother thought, huh, what brings you back here? How long are you planning to stay? Did you come home just to get cleaned up and then to take my inheritance with you? You know, what if you leave again? I have a friend whose older son is an alcoholic and has been for over a decade and who has come in and out of their home and terrorized them emotionally because of this illness. And she would tell me stories of when he would come home and the whole house would <sighs> hold their breath and wait in fear and hope, hope, hope that this is the time he would come home to stay, but always listening for the other shoe to drop in case he was gonna leave again. Sometimes these kind of departures happen more than once and that's a legitimate fear. Or maybe perhaps the simple desire for retaliation, as we've just discussed, kept him. He wanted to see his brother pay for his mistakes. He wanted to see punishment meted out. He wanted to see his brother wince and squirm and sit in it a little bit. We're not sure why the older brother carried what he did, but let's be honest, these things make sense and some of us feel these. So what a mess we have before us. If any of you are in messy families, which by the way is all of us, it's good to know we're not the only ones. Jesus tells the story of a mess to lead us through it and discover restoration with himself and with one another. We are all on any given day, the older or the younger brother, we are mixed with anger and resentment and bad decision-making and impulsive behavior, and we operate out of jealousy and judgment or our desire, and each of us has it in us to be either sibling. James K.A. Smith writes this. He says, you can still be living in your childhood bedroom and have departed for a distant country. You can be right at home and be the younger brother 
Or you can play the role of the good son with a heart that roams in a twilight beyond good and evil. Or you can even show up to church every week but have a voracious appetite for idols. Not all prodigals need a passport, he says. So we are each a prodigal. And if it hasn't unfolded for you in this way, the beauty of this story is that we are the prodigals, we are the older and the younger brothers, and the father in this story is God, our heavenly father. And notice how the father in this story then, as our God does, sets about restoring these two boys to one another. In the very beginning, when the older son begins his rant, he says, that son of yours, he wants no connection to that boy. And when the father comes outside on the front porch and puts his arm around him and encourages him to come back into the party, his father reminds him, that brother of yours, he says, and he reconnects them and reminds both of these boys of their place together. And this father is about the business of restoring these two boys and restoring them to the family and to himself. And so he sets out on a relationship with them that is marked by grace and forgiveness and abundant welcome. It is a relationship that does not punish, that is not shaming, that is not exclusive. It is a relationship that is wildly extravagant and generous. Not just in the robe, in the ring, in the fattened calf, but even at the beginning there was generosity as this younger brother went off and took half of the inheritance and the father was generous enough to let him go and see what happened. It is a father that seeks first to heal wounds and restore relationship. I love that the father ran out to meet this younger brother. And when he got home, it was a moment of celebration. He, he didn't say, now, listen to all the ways you wronged me. I'm sure there were some stern conversations later, but the celebration and the rejoicing over what was lost being found was what is most important. And this scripture tells us is the way God engages us through Jesus. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us then the message of reconciliation. God, is reconciling us, he is restoring us to him, and then he has therefore also given us that ability, that message, so that we can reconcile and restore with one another and ultimately with God. This is the business that God was in with these boys. Now there's an interesting note here before we close for the church itself. This story, we obviously can apply to our families and our relationships and to our own individual or corporate relationships with God, but there's an interesting twist in this story that is curious for those of us who call ourselves Christians and who are people of faith living in the context in the world we live in today. Before Jesus tells this story, scripture says in Luke 1, Luke 15, 1, that the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law saw this and began to mutter, 
This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus tells this story. Jesus is sitting with a bunch of younger brothers. And the older brother Pharisees are looking on and they are horrified. This rabbi, this man who claims that he is God is sitting with sinners and tax collectors. He's hanging out with prostitutes and addicts and those who have made horrible decisions in their life for some reason, and they followed him. This wasn't just like Jesus coming to tell them how it was. These were Jesus' friends. And these folks loved Jesus because he told them stories and he laughed with them and he ate with them and he traveled with them and they wanted to be with him because he saw them. And the church leaders of the day couldn't get over it. Those people, this man, he eats with those people? And then Jesus catches the muttering and goes, ha, let me tell you guys a story. And this, is also a story then for the church. For those of us with Christian convictions who have a tendency at times to shame and to point out error before we welcome people home, who are known unfortunately culturally as these begrudging judgmental killjoys, more likely to squash somebody before we are to welcome them. And I know that is not all of us. Maybe that's nobody here, in which case, yay, Christ Church, we're figuring it out. But Christianity is not known always for welcoming the sinner in the way that Jesus did. And so there's a note here for those of us in the church to think about how to welcome and restore people to a connection with communities of faith and with churches and with people like us who are, oh by the way, also sinners. Restoration is the business that this father was in. And I'll close with this. A story came to mind just on Friday as I was finishing up my notes on this sermon. Our middle son stayed home from school. On Friday, he had a fever. He's 13 years old, his name is Danny. And after my other two got off to school, we plopped down on the couch, I think he put like four blankets over himself and I handed him the remote, which is always a dangerous thing to do when you hand a 13 year old the remote. And I thought, okay, here we go, we're gonna binge watch The Clone Wars or Star Wars or something, I'm just let him pick the shows today. And he says, he goes, mom, he goes, can you put on one of those, uh, those renovation shows? And I was like, what? He goes, you know the ones where they like restore the house? And I was like, you mean HGTV? And he goes, what's HGTV? <laughs> I said, home and garden television. I said, the, the shows. He goes, yeah, he goes, I like to see how those end. And so we binged the Property Brothers for like three hours. I was like, okay. And it was fun because you know, he's kind of on his phone half the time and kind of watching, but he, he perked up and paid attention every time one of the shows was ending. And I'm telling you, this kid is not interested in bathroom tile or an in-ground swimming pool. He's not often interested in anything that's, you know, attractive or 
clean, so he's a middle school boy, and so I knew it wasn't about tile and about cabinet choices, but he would perk up, and within the last five minutes of every show, he wanted to see how it ended. And he wanted to see, and he would get this kind of smirk on his face, and he would show this interest, because you know these shows, we've all seen them, and there's some sort of drama and chaos, and there's, there's unexpected costs and all these things that they create around these shows. And usually there's a story with the family. Maybe they've been through a hardship or a tragedy. There's a reason the house needs to be restored. And at the end, the restoration is complete. And this weird, dilapidated house becomes home. And the families walk through the front door of their remodeled home, and it's gorgeous. And the last scene is never the cabinets, it's always the people who have come home, sitting in their kitchen, having dinner or wine or whatever it is, and they're hanging out, and that's the last glimpse you catch. And there's something in us that likes to see restoration like this. It's why these shows have been a smash success for over a decade. We like to see people go home. And it's because inside of each of us, there is a desire to go home, to live in restored relationships, to answer the call of our God to come home. I love the story of the prodigal son because it's got so much detail in it. There are some parables that Jesus tells that he gives like a line and a half and you're like, ah, I'm having a hard time picturing that one. You can imagine, some of you probably had in your mind the idea of what the front porch looked like when the father went out and sat next to his oldest son and invited him in. You can picture home here. Jesus tells the story of a family working out their home. And in John 14, when the followers of Jesus were stressed out, when Jesus kept saying to them, I'm gonna leave you guys, and they were like, ah, we don't understand what that means. And he tried to explain it, and they were stressed, and they were scared, and they didn't get it. He starts John 14, and he says, listen up, friends. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, will believe also in me. My Father's house, he says, has many rooms, and if that were not so, would I have told you that I'm gonna go there and prepare a place for you? I wouldn't have said that if it wasn't true. So he says, if I go there and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you with me so that you may also be where I am. And he says, you know the way to the place I am going. You know how to get there. You know that you need to come up over the ridge and you need to open your heart to restoration. And you need to get over yourself and whatever burden you carry, whatever judgmental angers inside of you, whatever lustful, wayward, younger brother desires, you know what you have to do to come home. And I am here. And you know what? I, your father, I'm not even gonna make you come all the way to the front door and knock as if you were a stranger. I'm gonna lift up the hem of my robe and come running after you. This is what the God of the universe invites us to. So friends, let's go home and sit in the arms of our Father. Let's join the party. Let's join the celebration for what was lost has been found. Amen? Let's pray. 
Lord, thank you for this story that we have sat with all these weeks, for the words of your scripture, for the desires, Lord, of your divine heart that are to bring us home. Lord, may we be people of homecoming. May we dare to get up out of our despair, out of our anger, out of our desires, Lord, whatever it is that keeps us from coming home. Lord, lift us from those places and find us people who come home. In the name of Jesus, the church together said, amen.